0: Welcome back to Curious Fact. This is part two of our episode on Captain Moonlight, the Australian bush ranger. If you haven't listened to part one, you should go and do that first. It'll make much more sense. When part one finished, George Scott and his gang had just left Victoria and they were heading to a station called Wantabadgery, which had a reputation for being kind to swagmen. So they arrive on Thursday, the 13th of November. The previous owner would always give travelers work if he had it and at least something to eat, but he passed away and the station was now being managed by a man named William Baines who left them waiting at the gate for two and a half hours before he went to see them and then told them to bugger off basically and refuse them work. So they sleep in the hills that night and the next day they return and ask, if there's no work, can we just sleep in an outbuilding? And he goes, no, leave. So they go away and they sleep in the hills again. Scott would later say of the decisions they made the next day, that misery and hunger produced despair, and in one wild hour we proved how much the wretched dare. Wantabadjury was the place where the voice of hunger drowned the voice of reason and we became criminals. So in the afternoon of the 15th, they went back and held the station up at gunpoint, taking all of the station's guns and eating their fill of its food. The station was a busy sort of central hub for the area, And so people kept arriving at the homestead and they kept having to take them hostage as well. (laughs) (laughs) That seems so awkward. Probably it would have been, yeah. The next day, Scott went out in a buggy to collect more people from surrounding (laughs) homes and hotels, though. And they ended up having over 40 prisoners. I just feel very satisfied that they've had enough to eat now. Mm. Yeah, me too, and I bet they did as well. Yes. (laughs) But it's telling that they didn't rob them or anything of jewellery. They just were like, give us food. Mm. And then
1: they held a bunch of captives because they had to, because they had nowhere else to put them.
0: Yeah. But um, didn't he
1: go out in a
2: buggy and get some more? He got more. Got a bit carried away.
0: Yeah. He was a very impulsive man who made some bad decisions. In life and in this day. Hmm. They were generally courteous to the prisoners, although in a fit of rage, George Scott did shoot a horse. <laughs> <laughs> Wait,
1: How, what is there more documentation on this?
0: So someone comes up with the horse and he decides he's going to steal it, but it's skittish and it's, I think, just annoying him essentially. So he gets mad and shoots it. Hmm. He would later claim that he was worried that if the horse remained skittish, then the other horses would stampede and it would be a problem. That is a legitimate concern. Yeah, but also he does this quite often where he'll take like a bad decision or an immoral decision and try to contextualise it to make himself look better. And that's like a really common thing that you see people in general mm. do, but also like criminals do, where they're like, oh, I-, I couldn't help it, I had to do this because of reasons. I'm not saying it's either way, but you could definitely read his character multiple ways. Mm-hmm. Baines, the manager of the station who had been very dismissive of them, was constantly trying to provoke Scott and violence would threaten and then it would calm down. Ultimately he didn't do anything but he had for to like hang him at one point and part of what provoked him was that Baines called James Nesbitt a poof. Hmm. Hmm. So, I'm offended. Yeah, I mean so was George Scott. So ultimately they just stayed too long at the scene of the crime and the police became aware and four constables were sent to see what was happening shots were fired on either side and each claimed that the other party had started the gunfire but they successfully run the police off and the next morning scott and his men leave they stuck around all night yeah oh it happened at like 3 a.m No. they ride off on stolen horses but half of them are just city boys who've never ridden a horse before um and they're really struggling to stay on it and scott in his later writings notes that he could see the hostages behind them trying not to (laughs) But nevertheless, they do ride off and later that day they stop at a farmhouse nearby and ask for some milk. I think ask means they pointed a gun at the people who lived there and said, we would like some milk. And they drank their milk and then they went to leave and they just timed this incredibly badly because the police were passing by. So they say, oh yeah, you need to surrender now, we're arresting you. And Scott says, no. So a gunfight begins. So there's six members to the gang, if you remember. Mm-hmm. Gus Warneck, who's the 15-year-old that he met in the city and bought some coffee and buns for, gets caught outside and he gets shot in the wrist and the torso. He calls out to George Scott, and like, Captain George, Captain George, trying to get him to come for him. And then just in general to anyone who's present yells out, lift me up, I'm only 15, but... There was a gunfight going on and he was ignored. Rogan went and hid under a bed in the house for the whole affair and he wasn't found until the next day. That's um, some
1: commitment to hiding under the bed there.
0: Yeah, given the circumstance, you would. <laughs> Maybe he fell asleep. Probably he did at some point. He's there for the afternoon and the whole night. Yeah. Yeah. So that leaves four of them Bennett, Johns, Nesbitt, and Scott. And they end up in a kitchen that's detached from the rest of the house. Mm just trying to wield off the fire of the police who are shooting on the kitchen. Bennett gets shot in the arm and is out of the fight. And then Nesbitt turns to George Scott and says, we should surrender, we're going to kill people, we're going to be killed, this needs to end. George Scott agrees not to kill anyone, but he won't surrender, and they stay in the kitchen. So it's being fired on, George Scott runs out and shoots and runs back in and runs back out and shoots and does that repeatedly. One time he shoots a horse. This is a theme. Yeah. <laughs> he runs back in and tells James Nesbit it was only a horse, don't worry, I haven't killed anyone, and does this again and again, going out there. He claims that he was shooting to miss and just trying to get them to leave, which is essentially what they'd done the night before. And then one of the officers, Edward Bowen, is shot. Scott later claimed that he knew who had fired the bullet, but he wouldn't name him. But in any case, whoever it was, someone fired, and the bullet hits Bowen in the neck, and he dies six days later.
2: That was slow. Yeah. Okay.
0: One of the policemen is in the house proper, looking through the back windows that have a sight on the kitchen, and he pulls aside the curtain and is looking right at James Nesbitt. Gorman claims that Nesbitt fired a shot at him. Scott claims that Nesbitt wasn't even holding a weapon and that he had raised his right hand. Whichever way it happened, Gorman fired a shot and it shot James Nesbitt through the head. So Scott immediately stops firing, he screams and he runs to James Nesbitt's side. He gathers him up in his arms and he holds him close and holds his hand as he lies dying, sobbing. And then he thinks that James Nesbitt is dead, and he can hear Gus Warneck, the 15-year-old, outside, still crying out for him. So he puts Nesbitt down on the floor, picks up his gun, and goes to Gus Warneck outside. Warneck says to him, I've done my best, George, don't blame yourself. And he sits there holding him until the police come, restrain him, and take Scott and Warneck into the house. As he's walking toward the house of the police, he looks up and sees them beating Frank Johns, one with a foot on his neck. So they're all taken into the kitchen. Frank Johns holds onto Warneck as he dies. Scott realizes that James Nesbitt is still alive and the police allow him to hold him until he dies. And he sits there holding his dead body for some time, sobbing uncontrollably and repeatedly kissing his face. They're kept in the kitchen that night. The surviving four members, Scott, Johns, Bennett and Rogan, are then sent to Darlinghurst to stand trial for their lives. On the 23rd of November, Edward Bowen, the police officer who'd been shot, dies. And he was used as a martyr by the New South Wales Premier, Henry Parks, and the police force because they badly needed a win, given that the Kelly gang had been embarrassing them for so long they needed to have rangers that they successfully prosecuted. So the first thing that happens is that Gus Warnock and James Nesbitt's deaths are ruled as justifiable homicide and the charges against the four remaining members of Moonlight's gang are upgraded from wounding with intent to kill to murder. There's this massive media storm around it as they're being taken by train to Darlinghurst. There are people crowding next to the train tracks literally throughout the entire night just to see the train go past. Mm. Because it was such a prominent and politically important case it was rushed through the court system, giving them no time to prepare any kind of legal defense, and the trial was set for December 3rd. They did succeed in having it delayed until the 8th, very little time. Scott's strategy is basically to take all of the blame on himself and try to move it off of his three surviving friends. They issued 1,300 tickets to the public for the trial. People were trying to force their way in, they were lying about being reporters, police were restraining people. The judge was a man named Justice William Windyer, and his cousin was Walter Windyer, who had been the owner of Wanted Station before he passed away Mm -hmm. and he was also the former attorney general to the new south wales premier to henry parks who was so politically invested in this case so there's this obvious conflict of interest here yeah yeah that's just never addressed the Attorney General begins by detailing the gunfight and saying that as all four men had fired shots, they were all guilty of Bowen's murder, regardless of who actually fired the bullet that shot him.
2: That is not usually how murder works, but I will,
0: okay, sure.
1: I don't know what the law on this would have been. Been at that time, though. I don't know that we can comment on
0: that. Mm, But it's especially unfair, at least to Rogan, who hid under a bed the whole time. Hmm. Yes. Yeah. So Constable Rowe, one of the policemen who was present, said that Scott had shot Bowen and that he had seen that, and also that he could prove it because Bowen had been shot with a bullet from a Snyder rifle, and Scott was the only one who was wielding such a weapon. However, the doctor, Robert McKillop, who cared for Bowen after the event, said that the bullet had come from a Colt revolver.
2: Flashbacks. Didn't we have one of those in the bank robbery in the first place? We did, yeah.
0: And this meshed with Scott's claim that Bowen had been shot with a Colt revolver by a person whom he wouldn't name. So two revolvers had been taken from the gang. One hadn't been fired. The other one had been fired twice. And people were confused about who had wielded it. So Sergeant Carroll said he thought... That James Nesbitt had wielded it, but he admitted that he couldn't swear to it. Constable Barry said that he had taken a revolver that had fired two shots from Gus Warneck, and Constable Gorman said that he had taken one that had fired three shots from Bennett. So there's just no consistency. Yeah. We don't know. The prosecution finishes its case late in the evening, and Scott is told to begin his defense. He said that he had barely been fed, he was physically and mentally exhausted, and he could barely speak. Could they adjourn until tomorrow so he can review his notes and prepare himself? The attorney general says that's reasonable. Yeah, of course. The judge refuses. He said that the case will stay open until midnight tonight and then we'll adjourn. The witnesses he'd wanted to call had already left because it's the evening by now. And the judge refused to let Scott read their depositions. So we have this awkward moment where Scott can't proceed with his case and is being told, proceed with your case. And then the character witnesses for Johnson Bennett make themselves known and we hear their testimony, so that works out okay. The next day, Scott calls Sergeant Carroll to the stand and tries to quiz him about the guns, believing that the confusion between the rifle and the revolvers is now key. But the judge stops his questioning, saying it doesn't matter who fired it. If one of them had, they all killed Bowen and they would all be convicted.
2: Seems unreasonable.
0: Again, yeah, I don't know what the law was at the time, but from our perspective, this is Mm. not just... Yes. That's not a particularly controversial statement. Ooh, history. <laughs> history. <laughs> so it wasn't really concluded beyond that at the time. But Paul Terry writes that it's reasonable to say that Bowen was shot by one of the four in the house. Scott knew who it was and it would be hard for him to know who it was if they weren't in the house. And also from where Bowen was shot, it made sense that he was facing his shooter. So Warneck was out of the house and out of the fight, so it wasn't him. Rogan was under a bed, Scott was holding a Snyder rifle, so who in the house had the revolver? It's either Nesbitt, Johns or Bennett. Some people have said that Nesbitt had it, some people have said that Johns had it, but consistently witnesses testified that Bennett was wielding a Colt revolver. So in all likelihood...
2: I mean, Nesbitt was apparently super opposed to killing people. I mean, I don't know what he was doing in this gunfight then, if not shooting people, but...
0: I mean, we do have to remember that this is Scott's testimony and that Scott is in love with this man. He's potentially biased. But yeah, I think what is alleged to have happened is that Nesbitt was one of them who was firing and then he stopped and then Boehm was killed. And like he stopped because he's like, there's no point to this, we're going to die. So it seems quite reasonable to assume it wasn't Nesbit. Scott is then given the opportunity to speak and he gives a rundown of his life, of how he views society has failed him thus far. He also said that he believed that Bowen had been killed accidentally by a civilian onlooker. He finished by defending the others, saying that they were young. He had taken them under his wing because they had been rejected by society, and finishes by saying, If the law has been
1: so broken that it must be avenged by a human life, then let me be the victim and spare these youths. God created them for something better than the gallows.
0: The next morning, Justice Windeyer sums the case up, and he says that the bullet that had killed Bowen had obviously come from one of the gang members. In effect, this is instructing that they be found guilty. The jury deliberates for two and a half hours and finds all four men guilty, but recommended mercy on Rogan, Bennett, and Johns. Scott was asked if he had anything to say about why they shouldn't be given the death penalty, and he makes the following statement.
1: Your church bells toll on Sundays and you all preach charity, but tell me, where does that charity exist? Do you not all disgrace the name of Jesus Christ? Show me the number of homeless children in your streets and the number of prisoners that pass from Darlinghurst and meet with no charity. You may give your sixpences and your names are put in the paper, but who goes and speaks one kindly word or tells them to look up with hope? I regret that I have broken the laws of the country, but I regret far more that poor Nesbit lies in his grave than that brave Bowen lies in his. You have all brought me to the gallows and left me there, and I will die a man looking at God, fearless of my fate.
0: In response, the judge sentences all of them to hang. Scott tries to speak in response to this, but the judge gets up and leaves, and they're taken back to Darlinghouse Jail.
2: Wow. So the judge just hates them from the
0: outset, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Both, like, personally and politically, I think. Yes. Yeah. Which is very much, I think, the general public sentiment. You know, he's not at all a folk hero at this point. Mm. He's hated by society. And it's
1: probably not a super unusual legal situation for the time. It Mm. wasn't the cleanest and least corrupt of legal systems that have existed.
0: Mm. Back in the jail, they're guarded day and night, so they can't kill themselves before the government has a chance to do it. Or make a human pyramid. Yeah, you fool me once, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> Public opinion of the other three, by which I mean everyone who's not George Scott, hmm. begins to change as soon as they're sentenced. And on the 24th, Bennett and John's sentences are commuted to hard labour for life. So now the only two to be hanged, George Scott and Rogan, who he had into the bed. Yeah, Poor
1: bastard. Hmm.
0: Scott wrote thousands and thousands of words in his cell in these last few days, trying to influence how he would be viewed by the public after his death.
1: Good job, Scott.
0: Yeah. He signs the papers A.G. Scott, alias Moonlight. And what's interesting about that is that he always spells it Moonlight, L-I-G-H-T. Always. Whereas the note that's left in the schoolhouse after the bank robbery is but L-I-T-E. And that's generally how he's known. Huh. Terry suggests that maybe he's trying to differentiate himself from the man who signed the robbery letter. Maybe um, he was just not that man. Yeah, I think it's reasonable that, you know, he just said mm. Moonlight. He didn't write it down to Simpson and Brune. Mm. But also Simpson, who probably wrote it, was a schoolmaster. He knows how to spell light, Yeah, I guess. Then
1: he did come up with the worst robbery That's plan ever. That's true.
0: <laughs> but yeah, it's an interesting little footnote to history. Mm. In these letters, he writes about his desire for mercy for his companions, his innocence of the Egerton robbery, and his love for James Nesbit. Of the latter, he wrote,
1: "Nesbit and I were united by every tie which could bind human friendship. We were one in hopes, one in heart and soul, and this unity lasted until he died in my arms. When he died in my arms, life lost its interest and death its
0: sting. In many of his letters, Scott writes about his desire to be buried in the same grave as James Nesbit, And in one of these, he ends this plea with a quotation.
1: Now call me hence by thy side to be. The world thou leavest has no place for me. Give me my home on thy noble heart. Well have we loved. Let us both depart.
0: These lines come from a poem by Felicia Hemans, who was writing it about the feelings of a woman for her dead lover. Hmm. Mm. So there's this obvious direct romantic parallel there. George Scott also wrote to the New South Wales inspector general asking for the return of a ring of Nesbitt's hair that he'd had. And he received it and he was hanged and buried with it. He also wrote a letter to James Nesbitt's mother, saying,
1: As to my dearest Jim, I have felt that the love and friendship, true, pure, real friendship that blessed our union, demands that I should defend his name to the last. My efforts are but weak, but in time, it will be known that he was an honour to all connect with him. I am ever to you a loving son in spirit. A.G. Scott. Son-in-law, mm.
2: basically.
0: Yeah, I don't know if he really knew their family or how well or anything, but he's writing to them, so... Mm-hmm. I assume they knew each other at least. He also wrote to Nesbit's father asking him to ensure that he and James are buried in the same grave. And it it was-
2: seems like he must know them a little then because it feels a little bit weird to write to strangers and be like,
0: I was sleeping with your son. <laughs> yeah, I really have no idea. I can't say the other way. The prison authorities promise him that they're going to pass these letters on to the people they're addressed to And instead they send them to the premier, Parks, who puts them in a drawer. So the day of the execution dawns and 4,000 people have gathered outside the prison hoping to see it. They're climbing trees and roofs nearby. When it becomes evident that they're not going to be able to see it, they press their ears against the walls hoping to hear something. Wow. They're very
2: invested in this. Mm -hmm.
0: But the prisoners are executed inside and firmly out of sight and earshot. Good. Good. Yeah. I'm not about public execution not as a concept. No. At 8.30, Scott and Rogan are told that they have half an hour to live and their irons are removed. They try to neaten their appearances up a bit. Mm. They're still wearing the clothes that they were wearing when the shootout took place. They're taken to the place of execution and their arms are bound by their sides. Scott looks out at the small crowd of officials assembled and says, what does this mean? What do these people mean? I think I ought to speak and he's quieted. And this is just a really upsetting moment to me because all throughout his life we see this constant desire for him to speak for himself. You know, he defends his own trials. He went on the lecture tour. He wants to give his own context for his life. He wants to define his own legacy. And as his story goes on, he's denied the opportunity to do this more and more until it culminates in this final moment where he's about to die and he essentially asks for permission to give his last words and he's denied A white hood is placed over his head, the levers pulled, and the men are hanged. So the government and the town of Gundagai, which is home to the cemetery in which James Nesbitt is buried, refuse to bury Scott in the same grave with him, and is instead buried in Brookwood Cemetery in the paupers section. And that's the end of his story for some time, until the 1980s, when a researcher named John Meredith finds the letters he wrote that were stuck in... Henry Parks's drawer and passes them on to the historian Stephen Williams. And Stephen Williams publishes them and also publishes one of two authoritative biographies on him. And then in 1993, Samantha Asimus and Christine Ferguson from Gundagai decide that they're going to have him exhumed and reburied with James Nesbitt. They navigate an enormous amount of red tape and are the first people to get a body exhumed who aren't relatives of the person or the state. They also paid the $6,000 of related costs out of their own pockets. Wow. They were very invested in this. They were, Mm. and good on them.
1: In today's money, that's (laughs) (laughs) $6,000.
0: When he was in prison in his final days, George Scott wrote about not only with who he wanted to be buried, but what he wanted the gravestone to look like and what he wanted it to read.
1: A rough, unhewn rock would be most fit, one that skilled hands could have made into something better. It will be like those it marks, as kindness and charity would have shaped us to better ends.
0: He wanted it to read, this stone covers the remains of two friends. He'd then written Nesbit's name and his own, with the date of Nesbitt's death listed as the date that they were separated, and his own execution date recorded as when they were reunited by death. However, by this time, we didn't know the exact location of James Nesbitt's body, mm. and so his body is reburied as close to him as we can make it. That's fair. Yeah. And the tombstone reads, "Laid to final rest in his friends James Nesbit and Augustus Wernick, who lie in unmarked graves close by. Close?
2: How um, did Wernick come into
0: this? So the women who buried him didn't view any of this as being a romantic relationship between two people. They viewed it as a close friendship and therefore that seemed reasonable to them. I mean, he explicitly requested James Nesbitt, though, and didn't mention Wernick in his letter. So, Stephen Williams' biography of him, The Wanted Battery Bush Rangers, had come out in 1991, and in that Stephen Williams just sort of takes for granted that this is not only a romantic relationship but also a sexual one which isn't to suggest that that's like more legitimate or anything that that's definitely the measure of legitimacy a lot of people place on possibly queer historical figures where if they have this really close friendship with someone well like this really close probably romantic relationship with someone they can say no, it's just it's just friendship but Once it's sexual, they can't go, oh, they're just close friends. Yeah, mm. that like once it's sexual, it's legitimized. But yeah, Stephen Williams assumes that they did have sex because of the quote you had earlier about how they were united by every tie that could bind two mm. people. Ultimately, we can't know. Scott and Nesbitt never could have spoken openly mm. about a sexual relationship if they'd had one, given the times. Unfortunately, this is going to be recurrent. Yeah. I did start reading about homosexuality at the time, about social norms. That explanation of, oh, well, they're just really close friends, and close friends expressed their relationship differently in those days.
1: Ah, that old chestnut.
0: It's often a cop-out, but also it is, to an extent, true. Like, people did express friendship differently in those days. And there's this particular kind of, like, it's quite often called a romantic friendship, in colonial Australia, in rural areas between men, particularly men who are in situations where there's not a lot of women around, that do kind of occupy this ambiguous place where we can't argue that they're all queer in a blanket statement, but also it's not something that we can dismiss as not being a part of Australian queer history. And so I think that considering these things does factor into how we consider James Nesbitt and George Scott today, but. I also think that that's something that fully deserves its own episode because Mm. it's a big topic. So we're definitely going to do that, but not today. Reasonable. Yeah. For my part, I'm fairly satisfied
2: by those quotes to say there's something queer happening there.
0: Yeah.
1: Certainly the profuse grief and the way that he spoke of his friendship – pushes that well into my zone of, yeah, that's queer, even if it's not sexually
0: queer. I think it kind of becomes a question of, would it be considered queer today? Mm -hmm. And I don't think that really matters inherently for deciding that something is a part of queer history. Mm -hmm. I'm
1: not sure that that is a metric that we should use. We're still working on our definitions of queer.
0: Exactly, yeah.
2: It's certainly the case that there are things which maybe wouldn't be considered queer today, but were queer
0: at the time, mm -hmm. or vice versa, and I don't want to ignore them. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a thing where implicitly, quite often, the metric people are using, if not, did they have sex, is if they were alive today, would they identify as gay? And I also think that that's fairly useless. Like, Mm. even if we could say definitively, George Scott, were he alive today, would not identify as gay or bisexual or anything like that. I don't think that that excludes him from being Mm. an important part of Australian queer history. Yes, I agree with you. I think that's
2: fairly useless because you can really only define queer in its context. Mm.
0: In this case as well, you know, Regardless of what form that took, these were two men who were in love with each other, who were the primary important relationship in each other's life, who were each other's soulmates, is the word Terry uses, and I don't think it's inaccurate. They were definitely life partners. And even if they weren't – they would never have defined themselves as queer in that setting or in this one, it's important as young Australians to have that kind of figure known about. Mm -hmm. You know, for me – looking for role models in australian history that don't still... take him as
2: a role model <laughs> no
0: <laughs> not for role models looking for people like me in australian history it doesn't matter if they ever had sex it matters that he was a man mm-hmm. who had another man as the most important relationship of his life and that's enough for me
2: no i agree with you there i don't think it matters whether it's sexual or romantic, there's already something going against, let's say, heteronormativity, I guess, in having that same-sex relationship as their primary relationship. Hmm. Hmm. And
1: I feel that that question of whether or not sex happened is something that history gets hung up on because after that point, you can't massage your sources and look from different perspectives and then subsequently deny that people are queer.
0: It's also this kind of neat trick because – There are very few historical figures who we can definitively say definitely were having sex with someone of the same sex Mm. because... People don't generally write about that. Not when they could be, for example, killed for it. Exactly.
1: And especially not when they're in jail awaiting their execution, desperately trying to make their memory and the memory of their lover something that they could potentially be proud of for future generations and are caring deeply about how they're received. Mm in an environment that's deeply prejudiced against gay people.
0: Mm. Paul yeah. Terry at the end of this talks about how he thinks that if James Nesbitt or George Scott had been a woman and there'd been a man and a woman, then there would be a famous Australian legend. There'd be a mm-hmm. Bonnie and Clyde couple. But because we can't contextualise them as this like tragic romance because of heteronormativity, mm-hmm. then we don't have that view of them. That sounds fairly convincing to me, to yeah. be honest. I just wanted to ask... What did you know about Captain Moonlight before this episode? A
1: little bit. None that didn't come from you.
0: Okay.
2: Same. Only what you told me the time we went up to Mount Egerton and walked on that lane and then had picnic. Mm, That was nice. (laughs) It was very nice.
0: Did you know the name? No,
1: I hadn't ever heard it.
0: Okay, yeah. No, not until you told me no. So part of the reason why he's not a bigger figure in Australian history is because he was immediately overshadowed by the Keller gang, mm. but also because like all of the primary sources were stuck in a drawer. Mm. And so we've got like the two big authoritative biographies of him are written pretty recently. One was written in 1991, and one was published in 2013. Oof. Mm. Yeah. And they both very strongly believe and state that James Nesbitt and Andrew George Scott were in love, and that this wasn't just some kind of friendship, that this is romantic or sexual or whatever you want to say, but it's in that area. And that's essentially like all of the secondary sources that exist on him today are really open about that. They have no problem with it. And what really illustrated this to me as just like a seamlessly interwoven part of how he's understood by Australians today insofar as that he is, if they go looking for information about (laughs) him, is I found a children's book Mm. written by a woman named Jane Smith. And when I say children's, it's aimed at maybe like mid to late primary school students. It was like 90 pages, Mm. one of those little information booklets about history. And I looked up the bit on James Nesbitt because I fully expected to come on this podcast and say, but of course, you know, in that setting we're still saying they were just friends. And she doesn't. She says most likely they were lovers. Oh, hooray. Yeah. And That's I, super nice. I feel that with George Scott, if primary school students, high school students, whatever, are doing projects on him, the fact that he was in love with a man, the fact that this is a part of Australian queer history, isn't going to be something that they're going to be able to avoid finding out about that. Hmm. And it's just a much more intact little piece of Australian queer history than I thought it would be, and that made me happy. Thank you very much for listening to the first proper episode of Queer as Fact. Once again, I'm Eli. I'm Hamish. I'm Irene. Alice is over there being beautiful and doing sound things. You can find us on Facebook as Queer as Fact, on Twitter as Queer as Fact, on Tumblr as Queer as Fact. And if you want to email us, we would love to hear from you if you have any criticism or anything you liked, anything that you would like to hear about that's happened in queer history anywhere in the world at any time it's queerasfact at gmail.com write to us do it we'll be back on the 15th of april with our next episode which alice will be hosting next time she's going to be talking about the life of julie d'aubigny who was a bisexual duelist and opera singer in 17th century france thank you very much for listening we hope you enjoyed it and we'll see you next time